Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 128, and today's guest is Leslie Burrell, VP of Smart Cities at Intersection. When we talk about the next 5, 10, 15 or more years of urban living, the phrase smart city will almost definitely be part of the conversation. Now, smart city can mean a number of different things from good public Wi-Fi to autonomous cars and much, much more. Well, Intersection is a company at the forefront of the smart cities revolution. Its mission is to improve the experience of public places through technology that provides connectivity, information, and engaging content and experiences to civilians across various cities. You might know them from Link NYC, the largest and fastest free public Wi-Fi network in the world. Leslie is part of the team that is making smart cities a reality, and as we discuss her background, you'll notice she has never been afraid to take chances and simply go for it. This is all paid off as she has held engineering leadership roles at a variety of tech companies in New York City. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like Leslie's thoughts on what our smart city future will look like, the full background story of her career and how she worked her way into engineering leadership roles, all the details on Intersection's products and how they are powering smart cities plus their business model, the company's culture including their approach to diversity and inclusion, and advice for companies on building a diverse workplace, advice for women on pursuing leadership roles in tech, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. Our job board has over 4,400 positions listed, and we just went through a major redesign of our job listings. It is a much cleaner design, and you'll find highly relevant information on each listing like employee testimonials, photos, videos, and the latest featured story from VentureFizz. This way you can learn a lot more about the company and its culture direct from each job listing. Go to VentureFizz.com backslash jobs to check out all the listings. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Leslie. Leslie, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk to you today. Yeah, we've got a lot to talk about. Intersection is doing some really, really cool stuff in the world of smart cities that we live in. So to expand on that, I wanted to talk to you about the world of smart cities. So like, what's, what's the future going to look like as it relates to smart cities that now there's all this connected tissue of technology that's making that urban experience so much more fluid and, and, and there's just, you know, so much vibrant uh, ways to use, te- use technology now. So what, what, what can we expect as, you know, being, uh, you know, citizens of, of, of a city? Like what, what's the smart city going to look like potentially? Sure. Um, so I guess the way that I think about smart cities, I think there's two different perspectives with smart cities. There's this utopian view of, of smart cities that you hear about in videos and, and in exhibits that talk about smart cities. And you see, um, you hear about these um, smart cities that are, that are being developed in, in deserts in Arizona or I think in, um, in, in Asia in different spots where they're, they're trying to build these greenfield developments that are these purest kind of view of a smart city um, being built from the ground up. Um, and I think that those are very interesting as a sort of laboratory experiment. Um, but I also um, really appreciate what we're doing at Intersection, which is a more pragmatic approach to the smart city, which is looking at the cities that exist today, cities like New York and and London, Tokyo, the major metropolitan areas that we live in today that aren't going away and and figuring out how do we evolve those cities and the infrastructure that that exists and that's been embedded and and evolved over the years and continue to evolve it with new technology and develop that and, and what does the future look like of those cities. And that's really what's more interesting to me and I think is um, 
is a little bit more a, a more realist and a more pragmatic view because these cities aren't going away. And and while um, it's exciting for people to think about a greenfield development of a of the the new smart city, I think thinking about how technology can change the the world that we live in today um, is a little bit more realistic because that's going to teach us more about um, about the real world, right? And and so and that's what we're doing at intersection. And we've learned a lot by by deploying by deploying technology in a real city. And I think to a certain extent, a lot more than you learn by trying to build a greenfield development um, from the ground up. While that that's flashy and exciting and sexy, I think you you learn you learn something very different by trying to deploy technology into an existing um, into an existing city that where the infrastructure has been embedded for years. And, um, and, and so that's, that's what is interesting and in thinking about how that changed the, lands, the, the landscape. With Link in particular, I think the biggest change that, that, we're, that we're able to impact with smart cities is obviously the connectivity. You know, we have, um, we have, have one of the largest Wi-Fi networks in the world with over 6 million subscribers. And, and, and what I love about that too is, is it is very mission driven. We have, um, I think it was last year, there was an article that showed that, that even, even, to, even in the world today, which we take for granted because we work in technology, there's something like 15% of high school students don't have, uh, don't have internet connecti- connectivity at home and they rely on public Wi-Fi in order to get their homework done. And so the things that we're doing here and providing Wi-Fi services are not just about creating cool technology, but they're about like, Help, helping the public and helping our helping provide a public service for people that need it, um, and that's to me also part of building a smart city. Right, is is giving giving everybody access to things that they need in their daily life in the future. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's good to have, like you said, some of the, the flash, but it really comes down to um, you know pr- you know making it pragmatic and functional that people can actually you know get value out of it. Right, and I and I guess to talk about something that's maybe a little bit more, a little bit on the sexy side, um, but um, but it, it interesting and kind of further off is that the the idea of, of how autonomous vehicles can open up the urban landscape and and free up parking. So parking is one of those things, especially in New York, that takes up a lot of a lot of space. And while autonomous vehicles are still quite, I think the reality of them is still pretty far off. Um, that's one of the, I think one of the things, even, even years ago when I started hearing about, about them and seeing, I think it was, um, I think it was actually somebody from Sidewalk Labs that was doing a talk about, um, about smart cities and the idea of, of having autonomous vehicles that could actually drop you off at work and then go drive out of the city or, you know, start to, to use them sort of Airbnb style of picking up other people and giving you supplemental income, but then not using the parking space and being able to free up that parking space for public, for public use. And there's so much um, parking space being used in New York City that could be put to other uses. Again, that's a, that's a way that we sort of marry the idea of the smart city with also public good, which I think is really interesting. Yeah. I mean, well, it's, it's, I guess starting to happen, right. In the Brooklyn Navy yard, they're going to have yeah. autonomous transport transportation. So yeah, they just, they just, um, they just launched the first, uh, the, that first trial. My uh, friend of mine actually, um, actually tried it out. 
Well, there's uh, there's definitely an exciting future ahead. But let's uh, let's rewind the clock. Let's talk about your background. So, so where did you grow up, and what were you like as a child? Um, so I grew up in Houston, Texas. Um, I was uh, one of four children. My um, my my um, my father's Cuban, and my mother's Jewish. So I have a, a diverse background, and um, and I've always been sort of a, a strong-willed person. My mom, my mom often described me as counterphobic, meaning that I, um, whenever there was something that I was uh, scared of, I would dive headfirst into it. So that scared her. <laughs> um, and I think, um, and, uh, very strong-willed and, you know, growing up in, I grew up in, you know, Houston is sort of like one big suburb. I think it's become a little bit more of a city now, but, um, that was sort of me growing up. I did, you know, when I was when I was about thirteen, my family moved to to Europe for a while. My dad was a psychiatrist, and he decided that he wanted to go to business school. So we actually went to to Europe. And I think that getting out of um, getting out of Texas at that stage of my life gave me um, gave me a a, a a different and healthy perspective on life, um, a different view of the world that that really shaped me. Um, and, and, um, that not everybody, probably not everybody gets to have at that age of just sort of getting out of the U S and getting out of Texas and getting out of sort of my little cocoon. So, um, it made me a little bit more, 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 um, uh, a little bit more worldly, I guess, at that point to, to see different perspectives. Now, were you always interested in technology because you graduated an MIS degree from UT Austin? Uh, so I, I was not into computers when I was in, in high school or, or younger. I think when I, I actually started, um, I started university at um, University of Pennsylvania, and that's where I took my first computer class. I was, in, I was actually at Wharton up there, and that's when I, when I first realized that I enjoyed computers, and I think that was because, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of high school and I, you know, I was, I did well in school and it wasn't um, super challenging for me, but working with computers, I felt like was the first time that I was really challenged intellectually. And I enjoyed that challenge, not the first time, but it was, it was a, it was a challenge for me. And this, uh, the class that we had, uh, I still remember it was operation, it was called operations and information management 101. And we had these, I think they were like bi-weekly assignments where you had to, had to do um, different different programs and, and the, the class would go into the computer lab and basically spend almost the whole night kind of getting these programs to work um, and and then uh, you know hopefully you got them to work by the by the end of the night and that that feeling of um, satisfaction to get to get something to sort of conquer that and and actually see it that that binary effect of actually having something working and know that it that it was right and working was very satisfying but also the challenge of having to get it to work and then i think also the like at that age the you know being being younger and the camaraderie of like staying up late with you know other people and working hard and getting to a result all of those things together made me really enjoy that that kind of field, but that was really the first time I got into technology, so to speak. Now, your first job out of school is at ThoughtWorks, which is um, more, you know, professional services consulting type of uh, project-based work, right? Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a software consulting company. Right. 
I, I joined in, in, I think it was 19, 1999, and um, shortly after, Martin Fowler joined as their chief scientist, who's one of the one of the signatories of the Agile Manifesto, and so that's really when when Agile was first starting. And so, as a as a also a, a recent grad, that's sort of where I grew up and being surrounded by people that were just exploring the the Agile space was very uh, a, a very important part of my career um, because they, ThoughtWorks had a very unique culture. We had a very unique leader. Roy Singham was the leader of ThoughtWorks, and his he had a he had a had a, an idea which was unique at the time about um, you know hiring. You could there there was there was a, at the time there was this idea that you couldn't hire a bunch of really smart people and have them work together successfully, um, and he had this thought experiment that you know smart people want to work with other smart people. And so there was a very, this it was one of this, a very development centric culture with a lot of really talented engineers. And then you brought in agile. And so it was, um, the, uh, a, a very, uh, a very unique culture for me to kind of grow up in as a professional, I think. And I was surrounded by a lot of, um, a lot of great engineers and also just a lot of, um, a lot of powerful thinking, I think, as as we as we um, explored agile and scaled agile in ways that other people weren't, and so having that embedded in in my um, in, in sort of in, in my thinking um, a bit it really shaped me as a as a leader and as a professional, and that kind of helped helped me get to the next stages in my career. Yeah, so it sounds like it was great foundational years for, you know, first job out of school where, you know, seven years kind of building that foundation that continued to help propel you to where you are today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but so so what was the uh, the experience like as far as, you know, applying that experience to Travelocity that, you know, had a certain scale at the time you joined, but obviously, you know, you brought a lot to the table in terms of your leadership. Right. So, and, and I mean, part of, you know, I would say part of the reason that I, that I, got the job at Travelocity was because I worked at ThoughtWorks and it was, um, it was when I decided to leave ThoughtWorks, I was, um, I was kind of tired of, of trying to influence other organizations and how they were, how they were delivering software and had, had been trying to affect change at other places and, and doing agile transformation and really had a lot of ideas that I wanted to have more of an impact. And so that's why I decided to you know, go to a product organization. And um, and the person that hired me at, at, at Travelocity was actually new ThoughtWorks and was trying to get them to, trying to get Travelocity to be more agile. And so when I, I say this story, because when I applied for the job, I thought I was totally unqualified. I had no experience managing people um, I didn't actually have experience, um, you know, writing code and, um, you know, a lot of people, especially women would, are, are, are hesitant to apply for jobs that they don't feel like they're qualified for, but I went ahead and applied for the job and I got, and I got my, my first job as an engineering manager at, at Travelocity. Um, and so I, I say this just to encourage people to, to apply for jobs, even though they might not think that they're qualified for, um, and because there, if there's something that that sort of resonates with the person, the hiring manager, you can get an in, and and it can change 
change your career, right? Um, and, and so when I when I went to Travelocity, I think all of the all of the things that I had learned at ThoughtWorks about how teams develop deliver software effectively, um, about um, what motivates and inspire team inspires teams and engineers, and what the engineering practices are that um, help us deliver software better and more effectively, were were put into practice. So, you know, some of the things that, that I, that I did at, at Travelocity, first of all, when I, when I first joined, I was managing the transportation team, which was their, um, it was air, car, and rail were the products. And that's sort of their highest volume business. Um, and the team was about 20 people across three locations, um, to, to start. And so it was a distributed team you know, 20 people, so it was a reasonable size. And, and, um, and, and we kind of helped the team become more agile and really focused on, on, on test-driven development, continuous integration. And also, also one of the things that, that, um, that I had to work very hard at while I was there was when I started there, they had an eight-week release process and um that was that that was that was definitely insane to me um but at the time this was in 2006 and they had your typical sort of release manager with their checklist and all of their processes they also had a a, a monolithic application um that everybody in the company was you know contributing to and so they were they were deploying this monolithic application and it's and and any outage was you know cost cost them hundreds of thousands of dollars so there were there were there were constraints around that and so in order to kind of deal with those constraints kind of under learning to understand what what the fear was around the releases and why they had so many constraints so part of it was you know they didn't have the right test coverage. They had a monolithic deploy process. There was a lot of risk associated with any outages. And so as we start, as I started to understand what the what the fear was that was driving their release process, we started to think about how to break that down. And so we 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 um, we actually uh, started introducing a service based architecture and started. Um, started breaking apart that, that monolith. And as we started introducing services, we used that as a way to say, okay, well, with these services, we don't need this kind of release process because the services are going to have high test coverage. They're going to be easy to sort of deploy on a separate cadence. We're going to be able to fix them and redeploy easily. And so by using that as a way to kind of have an alternate release path, we were able to um, kind of, break through some of that fear. And so I think, and, and we got to, I think we got to like a two week release process. So it was like much, much improved. It still wasn't where we are today with continuous delivery. Um, but it was, uh, it was a big improvement at the time. Yeah. Well, it, that was great feedback as far as, you know, not being afraid to apply for a job that, you know, you certainly have a foundation that uh, would make sense for the position, but still, you know, wasn't exactly qualified for. And that decision started to really catapult your career. And, you know, at what point did you decide to to work at New York? And then how did you manage your career, you know, through more, you know, startups that, you know, led you to the point where not only you, uh, you know, leading part of engineering, now you're, you know, the VP of engineering leading the whole thing. Um, yeah, well, I, so my, my time at Travelocity 
my my team scaled. I think from the transportation team, I I, I as you know as each of the teams kind of got 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 um, got better and their process and practices ingrained. I, I took on more challenges, and I think when I left Travelocity, my team was. 125 people. So I, I scaled the team to to a pretty pretty decent size. We had set up an offshore uh, team in Buenos Aires, and um, and I had I felt like I had accomplished quite a bit in my time there. Um, but I think at that point, I wanted I, I think that Travelocity was like 5,000 people at a time. And I just decided I wanted to move into the startup space and try something different. That's just, that's just sort of who I am. I think that, you know, some people like to do the same thing. I usually, I usually like, you know, we'll, we'll just try something different just to, to have a different experience. And I decided I wanted to go to the startup space. I was actually already in New York. Travelocity is their headquarters are in Dallas, but I, but we had an office, but they have an office in New York and I was based out of New York at the time. So I had moved to New York, um, with ThoughtWorks. So I had been in New York for a while. Ah, okay. So you moved to New York then. Okay. I was connecting yeah. the dots of where you grew up to uh, Travelocity. Yeah. So I, but yeah, my life. I had I went I went to San Francisco when I was at, at when I started at ThoughtWorks. But then, you know, as a consultant, your life just is kind of a little bit uh, meandering. And I decided I wanted to. Life just brought me to New York, and that's where I stayed. Yeah. I've been, for a long time. Um, and I was working in, in New York for Travelocity. Um, and then I decided I wanted to go to the startup space and I didn't want to work and, um, I didn't want to work in finance and I didn't want to work in media. And in New York at the time, it was like 2009, there were very few non, non finance and non media startups. (laughs) So, um, Etsy was one of them. And I really liked Etsy. I really liked the product a lot. Um, and I, and my sister is an, is an, is an artist and she actually had a small shop on Etsy. Um, I, I think that I, um, I think that I, 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 I basically stalked Chad Dickerson to try to get the job because I, I don't know what was going on at Etsy at the time, but I applied for the job and I wasn't getting a response. And so I, I like found his blog and I emailed him and I finally got a response. Um, so I was very persistent because I really, I really wanted to, to work there because there were not a lot of um, options at the time of, for places that I was excited about working in startups that I was excited about working. And then I, you know, I was, I, I think that they took a very long time in the process as well, but I finally got the job there. Um, well, another great lesson of, of persistence <laughs> and how to get the job, right? Not just, uh, Oh, they didn't, I didn't hear back. I guess they didn't work out yeah exactly sometimes yeah sometimes you really have to work at it um so and I and I think also startup uh, like I, at startups really want other people with startup experience and so not having startup experiences you do have to kind of work a little bit harder because people are, are worried that you're not going to be able to work with that ambiguity mm-hmm. sometimes and so I think that that persistence was important as well at the time. And so that's sort of how I got into Etsy. And it was a very, and again, I think it was um, a very lucky time that I started because I started at Etsy, I think it was the week after John Allspaugh started, who John, and John Allspaugh is, um, you know, he comes from Flickr and is one of the, um, you know, 
leaders, thought leaders in sort of the DevOps movement and in continuous delivery and was a, was a big driver at Etsy with Etsy moving to, um, to their sort of continuous delivery um, practice, I guess, and also sort of creating that DevOps culture that they're known for today. And I, being there and starting when I did, I was sort of able to see this transformation. And a lot of the things that they were doing um, were, were to me answers and responses to the challenges that I saw at Travelocity. And so um, that kind of juxtaposition of those two experiences was great for me to see. And all of the practices that they were implementing around, around continuous delivery um, and even the, the DevOps culture was uh, was amazing to me because it it, it just was um, that was a that was part of the challenge at Travelocity was there was a lot of Dev versus Ops um, combativeness and so seeing how they could how the two those two sides could work together and 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 support each other and how how you could take the ceremony out of releases and create create that. Um, that kind of a process through automation and through through different kinds of practices to me um, was really um, was a huge mindset shift for me and something that had a had a big impact on on how I thought about software delivery for sure. Got it. Okay. Now you did um, lead engineering at other startups, but at some point you decided to start your own company carefully. So what were the details behind that? So carefully is a side, is definitely a side project. Um, it's something that I'm still that I still work on on the side. I'm actually working on a on a sort of refresh of it right now. But it's um, so I have a I have a son. Um, he's seven now. So um, it's a but I started it when um, he was. I think it was when I was sort of in between jobs. I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do, and he I think he was about three at the time, and um, so he was you know, just old enough to start having play dates. And, and, and I, and so I, and so I, I wanted to have play dates so that I wouldn't be able to have some free time. And what I, what I learned was when you have play dates, the, uh, the, the, the other mothers come over and I was like, I don't want to hang out with the other mothers. I want, I want him to have a play date. So he's entertained and I can do something else. And that is genuinely why I started this app. That's and a great so, idea. <laughs> <laughs> because I wanted to have an app that allowed you to make it okay to not have the other mothers come over. <laughs> no offense to all the other mothers. You got to run your errands and get things done. So that's, 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 yeah. I mean, to me, it was a great way to be like, look, I'm going to watch, I'm going to take care of the kids, but we can do our separate thing. So that was the sort of, that was sort of the impetus of it. And, um, and, and, and never like, I know once I finally, finished um, developing it. It was the same time I got my job at Intersection. So I never really, and I'm not a marketing person, so I never really invested in the um, building out the network, which is sort of what I'm, I'm still kind of trying to do with the, this refresh of it. Um, but I still feel like it's a good idea and I still love it. So it's still like this side project that I, that I haven't given up on, but it's very much a side project that I work on with a, with a friend of mine. Well, let's talk about Intersection. There's so much going on that goes into what Intersection does. So talk about what the company actually does. And obviously, if people are listening who are in New York, certainly are familiar with Link. But um, there's so much that goes into it, you know, as far as hardware, software, 
uh, you know, the Wi-Fi you talked about, emergency response and, you know, fun facts about the city. Like there's so much. So um, can you talk more about what Intersection does? And then, of course, kind of under the hood of the complexity of the product. So what Intersection does from a from an engineering perspective is we build and deploy the full technology stack that enables digital displays in physical spaces. And this is from all the way from the, the network and infrastructure, the connectivity. Um, we manage the fleet. Um, we make sure that this, this screens and displays are up. And then we provide the advertising that actually pays for all of the services that we're providing. And then as, um, as you mentioned, we also provide city services on, on the links, which allow people to you know, have free Wi-Fi, 911, 311, other city services, which are really important on the link. We also do have, um, we also have, Link is our flagship product and the thing that people in New York are most familiar with. We also do have a cities in transit product that is deployed in other cities. One of our biggest deployments is in Chicago. It's also in, um, Philly, in Philadelphia, in New Jersey, and we're deploying it in LA right now. The links are in, um, in Philadelphia and Newark and the UK, as well as New York, obviously. And, and so the, so we do have other products besides the link as well, that they're really, it's really about um, providing content and information to improve the daily lives of people in the cities that they live. Yeah, and there's such a great, you know, you, you talked about this already a little bit about the social mission behind the, 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 you know, the products you guys have. And what's great is it's, it's, you know, if you're a, if you're in the city, it's, it's free, right? So there's, right. so the business model behind this, so is it the ad network that's ultimately, you know, paying for this, this technology? Right. So because they, the digi- so the digital displays are, we, we, because we can show ads to, we have pe- people walking through the cities of New York or whatever city you're in, there's a lot of eyes on those screens. And so the advertisements help to pay for the, the services that we provide, whether it's the link or other digital displays in, in transit authorities, the people, the citizens and the people that are that are using the kiosks get the benefit of all the services and the cities um, and the cities get the benefit of the advertising revenue. Got it. Now, so you're VP of smart cities. Um, so, so what, what does your team look like and you know, what's the engineering team look like as a whole? And uh, you know, I assume you're continuing to grow, grow your team. So what is, what hiring are you planning on doing? Sure. So there's, so there, so we, we have um, from an engineering perspective, there's two sides. There's the media tech, side, which is more that advertising. So I, I don't, I don't, we make sure the screens are up and running. Um, and then the advertising or media tech size gets the ads onto the screen. Um, so my team is, is the product engineers and the fleet engineers and the service, te- the service desk. So product engineering is working on our platform that builds out the, the sort of features and functionality. The fleet engineering team is working on our tooling and on this, the sort of um, firmware engineering and the tooling that the service desk and our internal, uh, our internal users use to make sure that the screens are up and running so we can sort of monitor our fleet and make sure everything's working well. Also, so our field techs, when they go out there, that they can, they can, um, they can see what's going on and they can go and service them effectively. And then the service desk, we have a, a uh, sort of tier one and tier two service desk that ta- that supports the the fleet as well, and so that's the team that works uh, that works within the smart cities group. 
Mm-hmm. And, and like, what are your plans for hiring? And once someone does join the team, uh, like what's the culture like working there? So within Smart Cities, we definitely focus a lot on building a diverse and inclusive team. That's been our focus for the last, since I, really since I, I joined, but a lot of the focus has been over the last year and a half. I think um, I, when I joined the team, I was, um, you know, I was one of the only women in a leadership role for only a couple of women within an engineering organization of a hundred people. Um, and, and I really did decide to take on the mission of, of, of improving that, that, that mixed. And so we focused a lot on, on diversity and inclusivity within the team. And I think we've been very successful in creating a, um, a supportive organization so that people come in and feel that. Um, we've also created the right, uh, a platform where people can come in and contribute quickly. So we had somebody join the product engineering group, a I think it was a month ago and he was able to sort of get up to speed on the platforming and start contributing, you know, right away. And he said that he, he gave the feedback that it was sort of one of the easiest teams to join that he, that he's seen in the documentation and the process and the practices were great. So I think that that sh- we've also come a long way to get there um, to clean up, you know, the platform and, and how we operate. Um, and so I think that that's, um, that that's a testament to the team that we've built and how far we've, we've come and all the investment that we've made, not just in, in, not just in the, the code, but also in the culture. And like, like, you know, lots of companies are trying to build a more diverse and inclusive workforce. So what advice would you give to other companies? Is it, um, you know, just, you know, it, it can, you know, you got to take the time, effort and energy to put yeah. into it to get the value. So like what, what other pieces of advice would you give? Yeah. I mean, it definitely is, uh, it takes a lot of, ener- it t- takes a lot of energy, um, to the, so I think that, that, it's not something that you can just pay lip service to. You know, I, I, I definitely, we focus not just on the, the hiring practices, but also, um, like I said, the, the, the practices within the team to sort of surface the bias and under, help people understand bias in general, I think, and remove, try, to, try to surface it so that we can be aware of the bias that we all have and better deal with it and understand how, how we can minimize the bias in our processes, but also be comfortable talking about them. I think the fact that I am a woman as a leader for the team definitely helps a lot. I also, um, you know, hired a director of engineering that was a, a really strong ally and, 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 um, also very sensitive to that kind of, um, culture as well, which helped. But I, I think that you that it takes a lot of care and attention. We also had to really uh, originally, I think, partner with the recruiting team. We've come a long way. The recruiting team, I think, has come a long way too. But uh, originally, it was there was definitely a pipeline problem. We weren't getting, you know, we weren't getting people into the pipeline. Um, and we weren't sourcing them. So there was, there was that, there was the, the, the interview process and making sure we had a structured interview process, but there was also the, um, you know, making sure that we had the, in, the right environment within the team and thinking about how we do code reviews and thinking about the pi- the power dynamic on the team when we bring women or underrepresented groups onto the team and making sure that making sure to just talk about things and not be afraid 
to talk about it. So there's an awareness of the, that bias that exists. And I think in general, it's something that like, I've definitely spent a lot, a lot of time over the last uh, two years thinking about um, diversity and inclusivity. And while I know that we've you know, come a long way as an industry, we still have so, so far to go. And I talk, talk to people all the time about, um, about it. And I, I actually just went, had a dinner with a bunch of women leaders. And there's still so many women out there that are interviewing and they that are far more technical than, than me interviewing for, for director and VP level roles that are being told that they're not technical enough. When the reality is that, you know, they don't need to be, they don't, they're not going to be writing code in, in their jobs, but the interviews are focusing on their coding skills and not on their leadership skills, because that's what people think they, they know how to focus on. And as, as long as we're doing that, and they're, they're focusing on that more, I think, with women, for, for whatever reason, there's just still this this unconscious bias against women as technical leaders. And, and as long as we have that, it's just, it's, it makes it very difficult to create the teams that we need to, to be truly diverse and inclusive. And that's what I see more and more as I talk to people, you know, I, it feels like we're coming far because we see people talking about it more. But as I dig in, I see the, I see women that are great leaders still struggling to get these roles and having women in leadership roles is what's going to help um, help ultimately create more inclusive teams, I believe. So what do you like to do outside of work? Um, so I like to cook. I like to spend time with my son. I like to travel. Um, and, um, I like to spend time in New York. I like, I, you know, I, I did, I, I, I traveled a lot when I was younger. And so it's nice to, um, I haven't worked at a company where I've had to travel as much since uh, moving back into the startup space. And so it's nice that I got it out of my system when I was younger too, but I do go travel with my friends now for, um, for enjoyment. But I also spend a lot of my free time with, with my son. Any um, books or podcast recommendations that, you know, it can be professional, but it can also be just, you know, for fun. Um, so, so um, I'm, I just started reading Resilient Management by Laura Hogan, which I think is, um, is really good. She actually also has, uh, she just put out a, a newsletter that was, that talked about um, interviewing for, for leadership roles, which I thought was really good. Um, and podcasts, I really love um, Reply All. Um, because I, I have a, a seven-year-old, he loves Wow in the World for people that have kids. Um, the Moth is another one that I like. I'm also reading Down Girl, which is um, a book about um, about misogyny. <laughs> um, I don't know, and that's uh, pretty good. And Radical Candor is another one of those uh, leadership books that I really like. My friend has a podcast called The Sauce that I should promote. She's great. <laughs> um it's more what's it about current events um it's not it's like a very it's a very local small podcast but i love her she's great well leslie thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background your professional history and obviously all of the great things you guys are up to at intersection and of course all the you know other great pieces of advice around uh, you know what we can be doing uh to encourage more of a diverse and inclusive culture absolutely thanks thanks for taking the time to talk to me it's fun 
Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFiz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.